life is a concussive event. The system of trauma care in the United States is specifically designed around the concept that a 19-year-old in the United States of America who hits his head falling off a skateboard doesn't need to die an unnecessary mm -hmm. death because we can do things in neurosurgery that no one else can do. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Hello, so today we're joined by David Oconquo. David is a good friend uh, for many years now, but more importantly, he's the director of neurotrauma at University of Pittsburgh and full professor. In addition, he's the chair-elect of the trauma section of the uh, AANS and CNS. So David, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Can you start just by telling us a little bit about your background? Because you have a very interesting uh, history, if you will. Yeah, well, I've been, I've been doing this a long time, and uh, this is my 14th year in practice in, in Pittsburgh, trained at, at the University of Virginia, uh, which was obviously a fantastic experience. Under the great John Jane. Under the great John Jane. Uh, and uh, I have neurotrauma as a focus area in my life, which uh, um, has been immensely rewarding on a number of levels. And uh, we're really starting to make a difference in what we can do for patients with this condition. We're starting to move the needle uh, and building national consortia to, uh, to go after some very difficult questions in the field of, of both brain and spinal cord injury. Uh, and uh, for me, it's an honor to carry the flag for all of us who are in the trenches every day for so many of our colleagues across the country who don't get recognition for what they do at three o'clock in the morning uh, and, and to, to protect their interests and to remind people on a daily basis of the value of the neurosurgeon in emergency care. I'm glad you bring that up because that's central to the topic today, which is about taking trauma call. And, and I know that you do a lot of spine and you can do any kind of surgery, but your, your research and your passion, if you will, is kind of in the trauma area. But for most neurosurgeons, of course, they like clipping aneurysms or doing spine surgery or whatever it might be, right? Sure. And so, so this issue of trauma call, we get it that they're traumatologists that just do trauma or specialize in it. But the conversation is more directed at the general population of neurosurgeons, right? Yes. So tell us about the state of the union right now in America, right, with trauma call and what that really means. Neurotrauma is the least sexy of the neurosurgical disciplines, and uh, for those of us who have dedicated our lives to it, we're, we're, we're comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. And uh, very few people go into neurosurgery with a viewpoint towards, hey, I'm going to spend the rest of my, li my life getting up in the middle of the night to you know, take out subdural hematomas. Uh, but it turns out that it's a, it's a vital component of what it is that we do. And our colleagues on the Washington Committee, Maya Babu, Katie Arico, Shelley Timmons, Adair Prawl, uh, Ann Stroink, published a fantastic paper back in 2018, which was a survey mm -hmm. of the workforce in the United States for neurosurgery and emergency call coverage. 
and 86% of neurosurgeons across the country engage in call coverage for emergency services. So whether or not this is a, a central part or whether or not um, a neurosurgeon identifies himself or herself as a neurotraumatologist, none of, in essence, we have never abdicated our role in the provision of emergency care. And we should celebrate that. We should celebrate the fact that even though it isn't a core piece of people's practices, neurosurgeons have maintained that duty, that call to duty and that obligation to public health and uh, to the healthcare system at large that we continue to take and provide trauma care. Do you think that's sustainable? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an important service, as you say. Frequently, trauma patients are, are uninsured. And we are happy to take care of uninsured, but it's, it's not a good financial proposition. Um, frequently, as you say, it's onerous on our, our personal lives and physical health, and you cancel your elective cases to take care of a trauma patient, right? Correct. Tell me about that. Tell me what, what the landscape's like. We start from the premise and the reality that without neurosurgeons, people are going to die. Right. Okay. The easiest example of that is Natasha Richardson, the actress who in 2009 had what seemed to be a relatively innocuous accident on a bunny slope at a ski resort in Canada. She initially refused care when the first ambulance arrived. Then she started having symptoms. Then she was taken to a hospital that didn't have a CT scan. Then she was transferred to another hospital. This is Canada, right? We're talking yeah. about Canada. Okay. This was, then she was transferred to another hospital that had a CT scanner but not a neurosurgeon. And then by the time she got to the third hospital that actually had a neurosurgeon, it was too late. Did she die? And she died of an epidural hematoma. Wow. The system of trauma care in the United States is specifically designed around the concept that a 19-year-old in the United States of America who hits his head falling off a skateboard doesn't need to die an unnecessary mm. death from an epidural hematoma. Yeah. It's also centered around what's needed to take care of people in shock, you know, and who are hemorrhaging. But it's that simultaneous reality that trauma systems in the United States of America are designed around the 19-year-old who doesn't need to die an unnecessary death of an epidural hematoma. I mean, I, I just literally just finished medical school in this country, obviously. And I think the two things that were hammered into me more times every year than I could count is appendicitis, check for an ectopic pregnancy, and a young kid with a minor head trauma, think about an epidural. Correct. Because a very simple procedure is life-saving. And we know that if you have an epidural hematoma and you don't die, you're almost, your most likely outcome yeah. is going to be normal, right? Because those people tend not to have brain injuries. They die of mass effect and, and herniation yeah. without actual brain But injury. I love your passion because I remember when I graduated from Stanford in 96, I was on the interview trail and uh, I, I wore this pin because I really thought trauma was important. Uh, for neurosurgeons. And I remember interviewing at a school in New York, a very prominent one, and all the residents just laughed at me. And it was not, you know, nobody in New York does that much trauma anyways, right? Right. And they were like, ah, it's so stupid. You should be telling us you want to clip banners. I'm like, no. Like, this is the stuff that matters on, a, as you say, public health level. Yeah. Right? Neurosurgeons also have to remember that there is a significant spillover effect into our valuation inside of our local hospitals, our local practice settings, and beyond. 
for this sustained commitment to trauma care. So let's talk about that. And, and, and maybe some of our listeners are not neurosurgeons, right? Or they're, they're aspiring sure. neurosurgeons. Maybe talk a little bit about trauma care tiers so that people can understand, you know, different hospitals and where they live in this world. Yeah. We, uh, we have a pretty sophisticated organization in the United States, and uh, it's done for very specific and objective reasons that are based on decades' worth of evidence. Uh, that we have a system of level one trauma centers and level two trauma centers. Then there's another layer, depending on what state you're in, of level three uh, trauma centers. And uh, level one and level two trauma centers really only have one basic distinction, which a lot of people don't, don't fully appreciate. And you may or may not know this. Oh, I know about this. Yeah, it's the important. The only difference between a level one and a level two trauma center is that a level one trauma center has an expectation of research. And apart from that, every resource that's available in a level one trauma center is expected out of a level two trauma center. We have to remember that, that our colleagues who are out in, in more suburban or community settings, taking call at level two trauma centers, that again, aren't the, aren't the fancy people up on podiums at national meetings in the American College of Surgeons, right? In those trauma, on the, on the general surgery trauma side, these, these are fantastic committed individuals who are just taking care of people and doing the right thing in their own local communities. But let me just push back a little bit on that. What you said about level one versus level two, what you're saying, that's not a legal standard, right? We it's not a legal standard. Right? It's an accreditation standard. Yeah, right. Okay. So just accreditation standard either by the American College of Surgeons or, again, depending on what state you're in, there's a local state-based right. trauma accreditation system. The broad definitions of level one and level two are are consistent. Just in case any lawyers are listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an accreditation standard, not, not a legal standard. But across that spectrum, there's still an expectation of neurosurgeons being, being present and available within 30 minutes of being called. And that's true of whether it's level one or level two. And that's usually in the, set, in the setting of being residents, right? That's what we're, we're accustomed to, that there's a resident at least. At least. Yeah. Because the, st- the standard now for taking out a subdural epidural is, is, what is it? Is it two hours? Is it three hours? That is local practice. Okay. So there's not a, a formal um, trauma accreditation standard about that beyond the neurosurgeon has to be available to respond to an emergency within 30 minutes. So I'm going to get a lot of hate email for this too, but I always tell patients that uh, we are like the perfect doctor in the sense that if, if somebody has a problem tonight and they keel over and they have a subdural or hemorrhage or whatever it is, caudicoina, and they go to the hospital, it's the expectation that I as a neurosurgeon, if I have responsibility, will leave whatever I'm doing, my family, whatever I'm doing, right, which very few people do, right, because we're not like ER doctors, like on shift, right, Mm -hmm. and I will leave my life to go save you if I can do it. But then on the other hand, we are also the first people probably to say when things look really grim to say, look, maybe we should not do so much, you know what I'm saying? Like, whether mm-hmm. it be cancer is a good example. Like, we're not going to be, you know, I don't want to say that cancer doctors do this, but I don't like to offer interminable hope to people when maybe they could do more productive things with what limited lifespan they have left, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, that that is emblematic of, of being, of doing trauma in neurosurgery, right? Because trauma and vascular, that's when this stuff happens fast. This is a responsibility that should be embraced by neurosurgeons. Mm-hmm. Where... Who better than a neurosurgeon to step in in that moment and provide that clarity? Mm-hmm. How many times have you been in that situation of the patient with metastatic cancer to the spine where every other care provider who has actually known this patient for sometimes one, two, three years 
has been unwilling or unable to have that difficult conversation that says maybe we should stop. I had that conversation on Wednesday. Exactly. <laughs> and the patient, you know what, rather than the patient, like the mother was crying because he was 21, rather than the patient going, oh my God, why are you giving up hope? He said, you know, you've just relieved me of this giant burden yes. that I felt like I had to go on forever fighting until I died. You've offered clarity right. to that person. Exactly. Well, you gleaned a massive amount of practice and polish of your decision-making capacity off of all of those years that you had to make those very difficult and challenging decisions in the trauma population. You're exactly right. Think, think mm. about our resident education yeah. process, right? What is the fir- what's, what's the first patient population where you see independence and autonomy given to a, to a young neurosurgery resident? Well, JP's at Cook County yeah. right now. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm an intern, and when I go back to work tomorrow, I'm going to fly back from this conference. I'm going to show up at 5.30 p.m., and I'm going to be alone. Correct. I'm going to have a chief phone call away within 30 minutes. I'm going to have attendings, but in the building, I'm going to be alone, responsible for whatever comes through the door. Correct. That's my first autonomy. And you are going to take that, that obligation very seriously. Of course. And you are in a position to save lives. And it matters. And then there will be a moment that you don't even realize that 15 years from now, something that you learned because someone had a very significant injury, traumatic injury, that had to be rushed to the operating room, that also suffered a venous injury, and you had to figure out how to get get yourself and the patient out of that situation. And 15 years from now, you're going to be in a completely different scenario in an elective patient who came in through same-day surgery, who chose you as their physician, where you're going to be in the same situation with the same problem, and you're going to get yourself and that patient out of it because of lessons that you learned in the trauma population saving lives beginning from a very early point in your career. Trauma provides a magnificent and beautiful training ground not just for neurosurgeons, but in our military setting and in our general surgery setting and in the critical care setting. And it continues to provide an amazing, rewarding experience long-term because we can do things in neurosurgery that no one else can do for a patient with an immediately life-threatening problem inside of their cranium or affecting their spine. You know, I I completely agree with 100% of what you're saying. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit. And then ask you about the practicalities. Yes. So these neurosurgeons in these community hospitals, because we know how it is in academia, right? We're specialized. We have resident help and all that. The guys in the community, let's say they don't have 24-7 PA coverage or nurse practitioner coverage, which is very common. Very common. Right. So they're getting called all night about CAT scans with head bonks, little stuff, and they're coming into the hospital repeatedly in the middle of the night, right? What, what are those guys going to do? Like, like a lot of folks this, say, I don't want to take call anymore, right? right? This is where the conversation becomes less rosy. Yeah, right, okay. <laughs> because uh, we also need to face facts of what that same survey that our colleagues in the Washington Committee performed, which indicated that 20% of neurosurgeons were intending to retire within the next two years, and that's for a whole host of reasons um, about just the changing reality of, of, of the practice of medicine and the practice of neurosurgery. But there was an additional 20% of neurosurgeons who responded to that survey that said they intended to stop taking call by 2025. 
So now you're talking about upwards of 40% of the workforce being out of this pool of practitioners uh, to offer these, these critical and valuable services. And we need, we, need to be, we need to be open, direct, and honest about what, what does that factoid mean, that upwards of 40% of neurosurgeons may be out of the, out of the right. pool of, of, of practitioners available to provide trauma call. Well, um, we need to then double down on uh, ensuring that the communication of our value is not lost. And uh, it's a great thing that one half of neurosurgeons get paid to take call. That number should be 99.9%. Is that what it is? It's half of that? According to the survey that was, okay. that was performed by NSCNS and the Washington Committee, that was, uh, they had a 24% response rate. So, you know, it's a reasonable um, uh, sample size to make inferences about the population at large. It wasn't a true 100% response rate, right? But the, the, the picture that was painted is that half of neurosurgeons get paid some sort of um, stipend for call. And to your point about our, our friends in the community and suburban settings, it's disproportionately those providers who are getting call coverage, and it's less so the hospital-employed physicians in academic Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So the 70% yeah. of new grads are hospital employees now. Yes. And so I imagine they're not necessarily getting paid extra to take call. They're getting paid already, right? They are in community and suburban settings. Uh-huh. They are not to nearly the same degree in academic settings. So mm-hmm. when you're in an environment where, it, where there are residents and trainees, for some reason we believe that that means that, that those people aren't, Aren't, el- aren't eligible for call payer, it's built into your overall compensation structure without being truly designated for call pay, which frankly doesn't work because you know that not every one of your partners actually takes call or takes call to the same degree. Um, but that's okay. That's, that's a problem for us in, in academia to address for ourselves. We just need to continue to support our friends in the community settings. We need to drive the value of call pay up, even though more than half of them are getting at least $2,000 a night for for Yeah, and I know some of our listeners may think that that sounds like a lot of money, but, I mean, we're talking about some really highly trained individuals, and then I think about the wife of the 26-year-old whose life is, brain is saved. I mean, how do you really put, when you take that to litigation, that's like a $15 million lawsuit, right? Like, I mean, I know a lot of people think we're jaded, and they're like, wow, 2000 is not enough for one night. It's like, I mean, the, the human cost on the back end is so huge. We save lives. And if we're going to start placing value on lives, it's a slippery slope that has no end. Okay? We should be able to negotiate what we view as, the, as our own intrinsic value for that service in the context of everything else. And I think that it's, it's clear from the data that not just not just neurosurgeons, but the people with whom they are making those negotiations, also agree that that somewhere between two and that five thousand dollars a night is an appropriate rate. And you know, given volume of call and volume of, of trauma, et cetera, you know, so the higher volume centers, you probably command a higher reimbursement rate. But let's also be clear that the economics work heavily in favor of the hospitals. Okay. Right. Being a designated trauma center 
has massive economic implications for the hospital to the positive because it also means that you, if you are a hospital that can take any, any patient off a helicopter or ambulance with trauma, it means you're a hospital that can take any patient off of any helicopter, off of any ambulance for any reason. Right. Hmm. Okay? So we are... We also have this spillover effect that the value of what we provide, you can't be a trauma center without the direct involvement of neurosurgeons. If a neurosurgeon group walks away from call coverage for that hospital, they cease to be a trauma center the very next day. Right. It's done. Yeah. Now, we don't hold people over the barrel of a gun, and then we all have this Hippocratic Oath. We all have this, this inherent you know, undying devotion to people who need us. Uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't draw away from the fact that in a capitalistic transactional economy, we are allowed to say, <laughs> yeah. you need my services. This is how I value my services. Where do we meet in the middle where it's mutually agreed upon that this is, this is the compensation structure? It's so similar to that issue of stroke call because it's, it's a similarly important uh, area and you need the people to, to, to be able to take care of these folks and so the fair market value right that's what drives it right saying yeah. look you, we're all neurosurgeons so how are you going to keep David Aquanco from just doing spine surgery all the time or brain tumor surgery well it's got to be a relatively commensurate um, because because if you're taking all that call, you certainly can't do the elective surgery the way we do when we don't, right? Yeah, and then and then people start to get into this issue where they say, well, you didn't actually come in that night, so you know why did we have to pay you for call when you when you didn't come in? And you say, well, look, I got four phone calls, and and I and you asked me to review four patients, and I came in and saw the one person that that. Uh, that, that had this issue, or I didn't even have to come in. Someone gave me a call, we talked it through, and I could figure it out in 10 minutes that this was the problem. And then they say, see, it only took you 10 minutes. Why did you get X number right. of Right, you've heard dollars? this before. You've right? heard it said before, yeah. So I'm reminded of the story of, of the guy who's driving his car around, and he's hearing this knocking sound in his engine. He's like, man, I don't know what this is. And so he pulls into this, into this mechanic shop, and this old guy... You know, with one of those gray, fluffy mustaches and a big belly, and then those gnarled, dirty hands that say <laughs> yeah. that this guy's been doing this a long time. You pull it, it pulls in, and the guy says, You know, something's wrong with my car. I don't know what it is. And the guy turns on the engine, hears that knock. Ten seconds later, opens up the hood, pulls this thing out of his pocket, whacks this one little thing, the noise is gone, and it's fixed. And he says, Now you owe me 250 bucks. And the guy says, It took you two minutes. How is that 250 bucks? And he says, you're paying for the years of experience, not the minutes it took me to fix your yeah, problem. Right. It's true. It's true. Right? You owe me as a neurosurgeon for all the years it took for me to discern the right answer to your acute emergent question and the rapidity with which that I arrived at that answer. You're paying for all the years that I invested to ascertain that fund of knowledge you're not paying for the actual 10 minutes that I just provided you help. Yeah, and just to be clear for the listeners, it's just like with the stroke call. When we take call, we never question, like, oh, what kind of patient is it? Are they homeless? Are they insured? I mean, you're basically saying, look, we're going to take care of everybody. everybody. Right? And this is what really bugged me, and here I'm going to more hate email about the Affordable Care Act. It made the assumption, that, you know, there's like 60 million uninsured Americans. We took care of those people, right? All of you them. and I, we took care of every one of them. And to say that, like, there is a, I get it, primary care is different, but it's almost insulting to turn around and say, okay, well, you know, because they didn't have insurance, blah, blah, blah. Well, we took care of those people. That's what happened. The, the greatest irony of, of the debate about, about uninsured Americans was 
that if you didn't have health insurance in the United States of America 15 years ago, what you did is you walked through the door of an academic medical center, right? <laughs> and you got you went access. To UPMC. Right, you got access to the best possible care for nothing. Yeah, and we were all doing it every single every day. Every day. Every day. Every. I want to say fifteen to twenty percent of our patients. We never collect a dime, and that's fine. I was so happy to do it. Yeah. There may be all sorts of other challenges, and I'm going to leave that, you know, to another group of yeah, people. A, for, yeah. for, or another podcast. Or another podcast for another day. And, and there are a whole host of parallel, rational, and meaningful discussions to be had about what that meant to have um, a large uninsured patient population. But with respect to this particular issue at hand, MTALA is a federal act. We don't have a problem in the United States of America with access to emergent care. It is, it is federal law that anyone who walks through the door that has an emergent situation, including labor, is treated, period, the end. As it should be. As it should be. So in, in way of closure, having talked about how we all got here and what the present state of affairs is in emergent neurotrauma care, looking forward, you know, I, I talked with my classmates in, in medical school and now with my co-residents about how um, if you look at different domains of neurosurgery, um, tumors can increasingly be treated with chemotherapy, with radiation. Um, vascular issues can increasingly be treated with endovascular treatments rather than open surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, from a trauma standpoint, as long as humans are objects in space, trauma's out there. Correct. The, the disease burden, oh, you know, we get better seat belts, we get better airbags. Life. Where do you see the future of neurotrauma in this country? Life is a concussive event. It is never going to end. The, the, the epidemiology of trauma is going to change. The, the, the numbers of trauma patients are going to change and ebb and flow and move in different directions, but it's never going away. Trauma has been at the heart of medicine for as long as you can trace throughout time infinitum, throughout history. The earliest examples of medicine are in the world of trauma. The current reality is that trauma care is a massive ongoing problem in the United States. It's the leading cause of death and disability for people under the age of 45. With our silver tsunami of an aging population, we're seeing this genuine public health epidemic of older Americans who are falling and hitting their head or, mm. or hyperflexing their necks and getting spinal cord injuries with underlying cervical spondylosis. This is going nowhere. And no one is better equipped to offer those central, key, core services that change lives in the greatest extent than neurosurgeons. Well, you know, the, the first paper I wrote for Dr. Wang in medical school was about spinal cord injury. And in preparing for that, I read the Edwin Smith Papyrus, the yep. oldest text in medicine. And do you know how, how the writer of that document describes spinal cord injury? Quote, a disease not to be treated. Yes. So we are fortunate that there are people like you out there uh, changing that for ourselves and for our patients in the country. Thank you, sir. Appreciate Thank you, it. David. Thank you for the invitation. Great.